This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Vantanar. Welcome to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. I've got a interesting guest with me today. I've got Jack Camo with me. And Jack classifies himself as a counter-feminist, which in certain aspects could be a bit of a hot topic because of various movements like Me Too and a lot of the topics which have hit the headlines, quite rightly. I am going to say it's a very valid topic and it's a very valid situation where I think a lot of women have been targeted because of power struggles within industries and the challenge with the situation is obviously it's very open to abuse. And that's always the case when there's a power structure in place. But we're not going to be talking about the Me Too movement in that guise. I'm going to explore a bit of Jack's background and his insights into feminism and why he's decided to take that approach. Because there is a certain interesting perceptions on it, which I would like to explore. So Jack, give us a bit of an introduction of yourself, and then let's talk about your approach to feminism and your insights. Very good. Well, thank you, Lance, and thank you for having me on your on your podcast. So a, a quick statement of who I am in the context of mm-hmm. your introduction is that I am a, a counter-feminist, mm-hmm. and I actually am a counter-feminist social worker, and there are not many social workers who are not dyed-in-the-wool feminists. So what is a counter-feminist, and and how is it different from an anti-feminist? Because I'm not an anti-feminist. An anti-feminist listens to discussions of sexism against women and denies any validity to the notion that women suffer any disadvantages by virtue of their sex. Mm -hmm. An anti-feminist would also deny that men enjoy any privileges by virtue of their sex. I am not an anti-feminist. I recognize that women do suffer some disadvantages by virtue of their sex, and men do enjoy some advantages by virtue of their sex. But that's really only two quadrants of the horizontal and vertical axis. Mm -hmm. I am a counter-feminist because a counter-feminist says, yes, when he hears about feminism, yes, and. And let's also talk about the advantages women enjoy as women and the disadvantages men endure as men. I have a T-shirt for that. (laughs) (laughs) Feminism is only 50% correct. And if you don't understand that, you're 100% wrong. You know, it's just a, you know a quip. It's a quip, mm. but it's a it's a pithy way of saying, look, we're all about diversity, right? We all recognize these days that it's good to hear from all of the stakeholders in a situation. You want to hear different perspectives, different points of view. Viewpoint diversity is valuable when trying to solve problems. 
And it's pretty remarkable how the women's movement has completely, even worse than ignored, actually demonized the male point of view on some very important social issues. Instead of going for the win-win in which women who wanted some changes in their lives asked if men might also want some changes in their lives and maybe could we do a deal and could we negotiate, help each other out? It wasn't a negotiation. It's been a shakedown. It's been defined as men have all the power, as if there is something called the power that we can possibly get our minds around. I mean, we can define it narrowly and get our minds around it. You know, political power, economic power is how the women's movement has defined what power is because that's the kind of power they didn't have plenty of. But men can define power in different ways. For one thing, we can say, look, uh, having money doesn't mean you have a happy life, especially if you have to work at a horrible job that you hate to have that money. And especially if you detect in your life the absence of other kinds of good things, other sources of power. And here I mean power is the ability to live your life as you wish. Men would like, men generally, in my experience, would like to have more opportunity for happiness in their families, in their relationships with their kids, even in relationships with their own feelings, with themselves. You know, the Germans have a saying that women are what they are, men are what we do. And men aren't really human beings, we're human doings. You know, and all of these ideas sort of suggest that, yeah, we're really in good shape in some aspects of our lives, but in other aspects of our lives, we can be pretty bereft. And the suicide statistics, for instance, suggest that. You look at who's in prison. You know, it's not because men are doing great and have all the power they want and need that they're doing the kinds of knuckleheaded things that end them up in jail for 5, 15, 30 years. So we need to recognize that feminism has provided half and a very self-serving half of the story. And I don't blame them. I mean, they're a political movement. And boy, they're good at it. They are really good at it. And, you know, this is a podcast about thinking like a genius. The women's movement has been full of communicative genius how to frame issues, how to name phenomena that previously had no names. All of this is very, very helpful in moving ideas and opinions in the direction you want. And we men have, you know, we're, we've been left in the dust. And ideally, we can learn some of the lessons that the women's movement makes available to us if we recognize the, the tactics and the strategies that they've used and recognize that everything they say isn't truth, it's a perspective mm. and a self-serving perspective. So I am a counter-feminist because we need to talk about what's going on with men and the ways in which men suffer detriments, and we need to talk about women and the ways in which women enjoy advantages. And if we can balance out the four quadrants of man, woman, advantage, disadvantage, we'll have an opportunity to construct a healthier, happier society for us all.
Getting back to the power aspect between men and women, what do you see the differences are from a power perspective between women as a group and men as a group? Now, the if we explore the whole aspect of modernization within society over the last 200 years, when it comes to kind of Victorian productionized society, jobs, industry, everything else, it was developed to have standardization for efficiency for everything else. So a lot of, you could say, working culture, industry, everything else is built up around that standardization, because that's what a lot of factory work is, jobs, everything else is based on standardization. And there's a lot of drive to make things standardized and to make it repeatable, make it, you could say, in the end, profitable, but also make it efficient. Now, that obviously started with the men going out to find work, and that allowed them to have economic benefits to then feed their families. It was an indirect benefit of that. But the disadvantage is obviously they were disconnected from their families. They lost that engagement aspect with their families, which means there's a disconnect with the rest of the family, which the women then have had to step up and provide more of a, you could say, structure within the household. And the men was, in certain aspects, if they were working away, would come back. And then you had this power struggle within the family, because obviously the men are seen as an outsider, he's not seen as a family, even though he's the figurative household head. But you also sit with a situation when somebody's removed out of a family environment for 8, 12 hours a day. Getting back into that family unit can be quite difficult because now you've got conflicts. You don't have all of the subtleties of engaging with people on a day-to-day -day basis, regular basis. So what's the difference between the two power structures and how men behave and women behave then? Well, let's see. So men, as, as you correctly, in my view, point out, were induced to leave their most important relationships every morning and go to participate in relationships that are less than loving in various productive and sometimes very competitive environments. And to thrive in that environment is you, you have to develop a set of skills that is not necessarily conducive to thriving in the environment at home. Mm. And so th there is probably some truth to the idea that men are not as in touch with their feelings as women are, don't trust their feelings as much as women do, don't care about feelings as much as women do. But that's not, in my view, primarily because of anything inherent in us. It's because we have learned that nobody cares about my feelings so I feel a lot, or at least I used to, maybe feelings aren't really very important, or maybe they're not important for me. Maybe I'm not going to be respected or valued as a human being for doing feelings. So um, like a woman who kept at home is not encouraged to develop her knowledge of finance or government back in the day before women could vote. It wasn't because women weren't capable of doing those things, but it wasn't, it wasn't what we were valued, what women were valued for. So, you know, I, inter I interviewed an anthropologist a couple of, I don't know, weeks ago, maybe 10 days ago, who talked a lot about how the patriarchy arose or 
she did. I don't think she said the patriarchy, but patriarchy as a as a social form mm-hmm. arose because ten thousand years ago we developed an agrarian economy, and so men became much more valuable in that economy because of the ability to do heavy lifting that farming on a large scale required. And women's traditional role as gatherers of things became less important. And she has said that the most exciting thing going on in the world today is that that history of 10,000 years of women being less valuable than men or seen as less valuable than men, is being reversed very significantly by the emergence of women out of the home and into paying jobs and careers and government and science and academia. And I think that's all wonderful and good. But a much more recent development that was as earth-shaking as the industrial, I'm sorry, as the agrarian revolution was, as you point out, the, the industrial revolution. And to me, the great hope of my life is that somehow over the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, it's not going to be soon. I mean, think how long we've been dealing with the women's movement and how long and how hard it has had to work to achieve the changes it wanted to see. But I'm hoping to see that we can undo 200 years, not 10,000, undo 200 years of men being seen as not important primarily for the value of their hearts and their nurturing capacity and their love and their caring for the relationships they have in their families, especially with kids, especially as parents. And, you know, we talk a lot about how women have enhanced the economy. You know, we we were wasting half of our talent by keeping women out of careers. And some people will even say that, you know, we'll we'll have fewer wars when women are running more governments. I'm not sure that's true. But I like to say that there are equal opportunities for enhancing our society by not wasting half of the love, the relationship capacity, the nurturing, the the teaching, the disciplining. And, and I mean disciplining in the best sense because the root word of discipline is disciple. And that means a teacher. And so ideally, a parent and a father as perhaps more likely to be a disciplinarian in the family, in the best sense, is the teacher. Helping kids grow from being completely needy to becoming adults who are positioned to satisfy the needs of the next generation of children. And if we look around the world, we see a lot of wars, and maybe women can help to resolve that problem. But if that's true, I think it's equally likely, equally true, maybe more true, that if you look at other problems in our societies, namely the fact that parenting in a lot of places is really not working very well with kids not thriving, kids doing crimes, not pursuing careers, feeling desperate, full of despair, especially young men committing suicide. I see a huge role for the reemergence of men back into the family where we say to women, you want to help stop wars? 
Great. We want to help stop our kids from being miserable and lost. And we want to apply our maleness, our male point of view, our male way of looking at the world to helping these kids find meaning and happiness in their lives. That's my hope. And maybe in 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, we will achieve that to the level that we have achieved the women's movement. I won't be around to see it, and that's a little depressing, but uh, I'm hoping to see some uh, some movement in that direction. You raise a lot of interesting areas that could get really complicated to discuss, but there's something that you've mentioned in the articles that you've written and some of the research that you've written that women's you could say, application of power is completely different to men. And it's a lot more subtle and it's a lot more psychological than men. Now, tell us a bit more about that approach. Where, First of all, let's, let's step back a bit. What was the first time that you noticed or that it struck you that there was this disparity that made you look at it and think, this doesn't look right? And how has that led to you looking at everything from this perspective? Let's go into a bit of history in that regard. So one of the important things to think about when we think about power is what do people want in their lives? And do they have the power? Do they have the ability, the wherewithal to get what they want in their lives? I was a very sweet kid, happy, and I think I was a pretty nice kid. And the thing that I loved most, one of the things I loved most that gave me the most happiness was being around kids who were younger than me. I loved babies. I love <laughs> picking up babies and playing with babies. And, and I was, I was really good at, you know, they were crying. I mean, even sometimes like the mother couldn't get them to stop crying. I'd say, can I hold your baby? And they, they would stop crying. And so I would often hear as a little boy, gee, you're really good with babies for a boy. And that's when it first occurred to me that something was up about that. We recognize because of 30, 40, 50, 60 years of the women's movement that it was harmful to girls and it was limiting to girls' ability to pursue their greatest happiness to say to a little girl, gee, you're really good at math for a girl or gee, you're really good at sports for a girl. The message there is, hey, you're a girl, you know, get, get back in your box and leave the math and the science and the sports to men. So they were disempowered. If they had a, a desire to be great scientists or great athletes, they were sort of, they were disempowered in, in pursuing that. Not completely disempowered, but significantly and I believe that men have a lot more desire to nurture kids than we get credit for mm -hmm. and, and are welcomed to pursue. Because, you know, the half of the situation that we don't examine between men and women is the female power structure. You know, we know about the male power structure and we, we envision it as a hierarchy, a, a pyramid. Mm -hmm. And because it's a lofty structure, our eyes are inexorably drawn to the top. And we go, wow, look at all those powerful men up there. Look at oh, all those powerful people. They're all men. Presidents are men. Look how many men are in Congress. And we really don't look at the mundane lower echelons of men who got virtually no power. And so what I see in that power structure is the mm, 
I don't know, the personal fulfillment, the self-actualization equivalent of income inequality. And we know that income inequality is bad for cohesiveness of a society. The people at the bottom, they don't care about this society because this society is not treating them right. Hmm. The situation, the power, that, so that's the male power structure, very, uh, very stratified. The female power structure is not hierarchical. It's much more lateral. And while the male power structure at the top has maybe a dollar sign or a lightning bolt signifying the kinds of power that the male power structure is supposed to be striving for, what's at the center of the female power structure, and, and, and there is no top at the female's power structure because it doesn't rise vertically. It spreads horizontally and laterally. And what's at the center of the female power structure is not a dollar sign, not a lightning bolt, but a big red heart. And virtually any woman can become the central figure in a small domain, namely the family. She can become sort of a queen of her family. And because virtually any woman can achieve this, or at least has a reasonable prospect of being able to achieve that, much more than a, you know, than a ditch digger man can imagine becoming, you know, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, because a woman has a reasonable chance of not having a big domain, but she has a, an important role in that little domain, there's much less self-actualization inequality in the female power structure. And I think that that lack of inequality explains why women are so much more cohesive with each other than men are. Now, that's not to say that women always get along. There's a lot of infighting among women. And, you know, anybody who wants to say, oh, yes, women are just so full of love and they never quarrel or fight. You know, they, they've never been in a corporation, you know, where women are under a lot of pressure to get promotions and get pay raises. But w women, when they're confronted by an external threat, namely men saying, hey, you know what? We want access to the opportunities to be important figures in little domains, too. Women, you know, they circle the wagons and they are no more interested in having us in their power structure than we men were interested in having them in our power structure. And I think in some ways they are much more fierce in trying to keep us out of their power structure because of their social cohesiveness. They know that they all have a pretty good shot at some significant happiness here. Mm. And, you know, although a man who was, uh, you know, a lower rung guy in the hierarchy might not exactly be happy that he has to share with women or with a woman the, the opportunity he has to have a lower level job as a salesman working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and always having to be thinking about where his next sale is going to be coming from or even, even lower on the totem pole, you know, a ditch digger. You know, a man who's a ditch digger, you know, might not want to share his job with a woman, but it's not really that great of a job, you know? So, okay, so, okay, we give up. Come on, let's have equality in men's occupations. We have much less equality in women's occupations because every woman has a vested interest in making sure that she maintains her access to what she has a pretty good probability of having. It's sort of like the star system. You know, p take any star industry, you know, whether it's movie acting or I tend to think of radio because I, I used to do a little bit of work in radio. 
You know, there are some radio guys and, and women who make a ton of money because they're superstar jocks, but most of them never get out of podunk making minimum wage, you know, reading ad copy for, you know, Joe's garage down the street. So a, a lot of people in a star system are struggling out of just the very distant hope of being able to become a star. It's very different in the female power structure, I think, because there aren't a lot of stars, but there are a lot of very happy, connected people who get a lot of self-fulfillment out of the really the most basic and meaningful parts of life. I, as a man, have come to understand that the most important things in life are your relationships. And that's a new revelation to me, relatively new in my life. Women, on the other hand, are taught that from day one. And I think that helps explain why women are less likely to be alcoholic, they're less likely to commit suicide, less likely to become drug addicted, less likely to be in jail, because they're getting what they need as human beings, and they're not so much worried about what they're doing. So I don't even remember what your question was, but <laughs> there's my answer. <laughs> it was a it was a different a different powers you could say structures between the men and women, but there's a couple of things which you highlighted which were quite interesting because if you think about just the, the basic principles of in and out group bias or anything of that nature, where anybody was in your group. Obviously, has got positive association. Anybody outside of your group is, tends to have a negative association, has got bad qualities. It's fairly well-established behavioral fact in that aspect. The same principle applies even between men and women, where women will see men as being aggressive, bad, authoritative, brash, unfeeling, and men will see women as being too emotional, too soft, too acquiescent, and not being disciplinarian enough. And these contradicting terms, everybody's got their viewpoint, but nobody's really listening and actually taking a look and saying, as you stated, instead of saying but, saying and, because... Yeah. Yes. That's yes. that concept, which I find quite interesting. And it's interesting to note that the negative stereotypes about women that men harbor have been driven underground. What men do you mean by that? Well, in, if, if a man in a corporation thinks that a woman shouldn't get a promotion because she cries too much, <clears throat> he wouldn't dare say it because, you know, that's sexual harassment or gender harassment or he's not respectful. It's certainly the case in academia. Professors are really afraid to uh, challenge programs that uh, are gender biased in favor of women and against men. But those negative stereotypes of women, I think it's interesting to note that they all in some way served, and, and I say past tense for, for the most part, served in the bad old days to justify keeping women out of men's jobs. You know, like, as you said, they cry too much. They're, you know, they can't make tough decisions. And then there's lots of others. They can't do math, blah, 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 blah. Those stereotypes are dr driven underground. You can't say those things. It doesn't mean men don't still think them. They're driven underground. And when they go underground, they just fester and they don't, they don't get a chance to be discussed. For whatever value there might be in those stereotypes and for whatever value there might be in disproving those stereotypes. We can't even talk about those. But the stereotypes about men are alive and well and being bandied about, I, I think, with more, more vigor and verve than ever. 
And I think it's because they serve very well to justify keeping men out of women's domain, the domain of feelings and children and love and compassion. Because what are the big stereotypes about men these days? Men only think about sex. They're disrespectful. They don't care about their kids. They're violent. Violent is a big one. And, and the Violence Against Women Act over here gets, I think it's a half a half a billion dollars a year to support a cadre of professional feminists who have a very non-scientific idea of what causes violence in families. To them, it's the patriarchy. You know, So all these patriarchal men are over here getting patriarchal. That's why we can't have them over here where we all love each other in the female domain. They won't call it a power structure because men have all the power. So the stereotypes about men are alive and well, and they're not driven underground. And it's and, and we need to challenge them. We need to challenge them because, I mean, the facts about domestic violence, for instance, are that essentially it's a 50-50 proposition in terms of who initiates it, with many studies suggesting that it's actually women who initiate it more than men do. Now, when there is severe damage done to one of the people in a domestic violence brawl, it's typically the woman who suffers more damage. But most domestic violence does not involve severe physical damage. And there is plenty of physical damage to men when men are attacked while they're asleep or when they're not paying attention or when the woman uses weapons. I'm not saying women are any worse than men are in this way, but they're no better. And we need to get off the idea that men are violent. And that's why women should be the primary parents. It's political. It's not scientific. Okay, this is going to be an interesting area to explore a bit because there's, you could say, a noted issue in, I mean, I've seen some recent cases where a lot of women have started or tried to report, say, sexual harassment or racism, anything of that nature in universities. There's a lot of take up over here where a lot of it becomes very difficult to, one, report them and get follow-up support for it and, and actually take it seriously. And there's also, in a, in a certain aspect, there's a lot of de-incentivization to not go through with the reporting of a potential kind of incident. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be done, and I'm not saying that it's something that should be ignored. It should something that's got to be paid attention to. But the question remains is that do we have research which looks at everything and just violence in general and then compares men to men, men to women, and then starts taking a look at the scientific figures? What is the actual incidence? Because you've got the flip case when it comes to potential rape cases where a, a woman can report a rape case and can absolutely destroy somebody's career just on the fact that she was able to report it and manipulate the situation. And there have been cases with that, albeit less of them are reported or less of them became known, but the impact is just as damaging as rape or sexual assault or abuse, anything of that nature. As you say, there's no monopoly on abuse. Both men and women can abuse each other to great extent and with great success. It's just different ways. Men tend to be more physical in their abuse. Women tend to be more psychological in their abuse. Because the fundamental difference physiologically, they have different tools in how they implement their approach to dealings and manipulations. And it's an interesting discussion. Yes. And the problem of sexual assault on campus is real. The problem of false allegations of sexual abuse on campus is also very real. And the 
The way we optimize life on college campuses is to be honest about what's really going on. And, you know, when a man is falsely accused and he hears, we must believe the woman, that doesn't do anything to enhance his respect for women or for the women's movement or for women's efforts to attain dignity and status. You know, and again, it's a, it gets very political, even down to the talking points. I have been amazed at how frequently you hear the phrase, incredibly rare, when people are talking about false allegations of sexual assault. Oh, false allegations of rape are incredibly rare. What does that mean? If it happened to you once, isn't that enough? I mean, does it have to happen frequently to you to destroy your life? And furthermore, there is plenty of science that suggests that it's not incredibly rare if incredibly rare means less than 40%. We don't really know. There's the, the science is conflicting because it's political. And so we have a battle of the studies and the studies can be, you know, very ideological. You know, the, the scientific community, in my view, is very afraid of dealing honestly and scientifically with these very difficult sociological issues because they're afraid, researchers are afraid of being considered sexist and anti-woman for daring to suggest that women ever do anything wrong. It's not healthy and we got we to gotta do better. And so, you know, we talked a little earlier about the social cohesiveness among women, you know, to stand by each other and the in-group bias. You know, it's true that really bad things happen to women that caused by men. But, you know, rape is not something that most men, certainly not hegemonic masculinity, you know, it's just, it's not a hallmark of male culture to think, oh yeah, go, you know, raping women's fine. No, you know, you can be executed for raping a woman. It's not something that men should do. But, you know, if a woman falsely accuses a man of rape and he might go to jail forever, might be executed, or if a woman alienates her kids from her ex-husband, well, you know, that's, that's not really. You go, girl. He must have done something to deserve that because we know how men are. And on the other hand, we know how wonderful women are. And I would really like to see more women standing up and saying, excuse me, feminism, you're really going overboard here. And we need to be more fair. And if we want men to respect us and treat us right, don't we need to respect them and treat them right? And I think that's pretty obvious. It's a no-brainer. But as long as women maintain this insistence that in any problem between men and women, they are the victim, you're not going to win men's respect. Because although men are not encouraged to identify as victims, you know, deep in our hearts, we feel like we get the pretty short end of the stick a lot of times. And who cares? We got to do better. We got to do better. And, you know, I think this intersection of the two axes that, that create the four quadrants, that's ground zero for a lot, a lot, a lot of very significant social problems. So the question is, how do we get to that middle ground? How do we get to that common ground? You could say the middle part of the Venn diagram between the two sexes to allow for better engagement with its familial work, everything else. How do we get to that area? What's the best way of going forward with that? Well, it, it's it's very tempting to say, well, women just need to be more fair. But a much better and more sustainable, more hopeful 
uh, approach is for men to be more courageous and more willing to speak what we believe to be the truth. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to say the way we see things is the way things are. No. Any more than the way women see things is the way things are. But we have at least, you know, we have a 50% right to say, you know, our point of view is at least as valid as your point of view. I don't understand what it's like to be a woman any more than you understand what it's like to be a man. And actually, maybe I have the edge because for 50 years, I've been hearing about all the problems you have. And for 50 years, on the other hand, I've been hearing about how you deny that we have any problems. So we as men have been disempowered from our feelings, don't trust our feelings. We, we're, we've been largely raised to believe that we don't have any feelings. We don't know our feelings. We're clueless about our feelings. How to express feelings? Well, that's a hard one. We, can, we know how to get angry. That's a feeling we can express. Because, because men pretty, are encouraged to be angry and display anger. Yes, it's, it is the one negative emotion that men are sort of expected to express because it's, you know, full of rage and fury and somehow that in some people's minds is masculine. Anger is often a secondary emotion. The, the Why primary do you say that? emotions Well, the primary emotions for men are often emotions that we cannot, as men, self-respecting men, express. Look, men sometimes are afraid. Men sometimes are insecure. Men sometimes are sad. Men sometimes are suspicious. But we can't say, man, I'm really sad. I'm, I'm really, what man's going to say to his buddy? Yeah, I'm really sad. Oh, I'm fine. Everything's great. Yeah, you know, everything's wonderful. And also, what man feels perfectly comfortable saying to a woman, baby, I'm really sad. I'm really not sure I can, I can financially sustain this family. He doesn't want to worry her. He wants to be the rock. He wants to be solid. Don't you worry. I got this. And if I got to go rob a bank or deal drugs to do it, well, that's what it takes. That's what a man should do. We have primary emotions that we are not encouraged or empowered or authorized or expected or welcomed to express. Not at least at anywhere near the level that women are. And so since we can't express these really deep, unhappy primary emotions, and when we do express them tentatively, we quickly see that we're smacked down. Oh, what do you have to complain about? You're a man. Men run the world. You have all the power. Well, you know, after a couple of rounds of that, you start feeling, you feel sad or you feel insecure or you feel afraid. You're not going to say those things. You're going to say, God damn it. And that is not conducive to happy, healthy relationships or happy, healthy communities. We need access, full and equal access to that privilege. It's not privilege, it's a right. It's a human right to have a relationship with your emotions. And men don't have that anywhere near the level that women have it. And we are still a very primitive species in some ways. And I think we've done a lot more to liberate women from primitive ideas about how they have to be than we have done to liberate men from primitive ideas about how we have to be. 
I mean, 10,000 years ago, it was probably really essential that men never express fear because there is a tiger out there that wants to eat our whole little tribe. And I'm out here with 18 of my buddies and we got a big job to do and I'm not going to let them down. I'm not going to be the weak link here. So, you know, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to say, oh my God, I'm afraid. You're going to do your damnedest. You might die, but you're going to do your best. And so, you know, the primitive the, the primitive past that we grew up in as a species is still in many ways still with us. You know, men got to feed their families. We got to provide. We got to protect. And, you know, we've got civilization now. And the benefits of civilization should include a sense of security and the opportunity to have your, your deepest and most inner thoughts and feelings heard and respected without feeling like you're letting your tribe down. Hmm. And we haven't allowed men to come forward that way because probably because in some rare occasions, it still might be necessary. You know, I mean, if there is a noise in the house late at night, hey, Joe, get up and find out what that is. There's a, there's a really good commercial <laughs> by the Schick Shaving Company mm -hmm. in Australia where there's a noise in the house. And the woman says, Joe, get up, get up, go see what that is. And he goes, why? Why? And she says, because you're a, and he interrupts and says, an accountant? <laughs> you know, and ideally, really, shouldn't it be that they both go down, right? Yeah. I'll take a baseball bat. You take, you know, a, a high heeled shoe. I, you know, you take something and we got a better chance together. But, you know, the default is I'll stay up here and be safe and you better be manly. You better be unafraid. And, you know, you need to be a super accountant. <laughs> you know, that's that's not in any accountant's job description, right? But, you know, th there it is. It still is somewhat necessary or it might be necessary. And, and women still feel like, yeah, well, it's his job because he's got bigger muscles. Well, maybe, but he doesn't have all the muscles. You've got some muscles too. How about you know, jumping in and being a partner there. We got a lot of work to do in this regard. You know, we need to talk to women from the bottom of our hearts. And it's hard because, you know, in some ways, I'm not saying that it's not true of men too, but in some ways, women think they are superior to men. Women very often express the idea that they create life. They gestate life, but they don't create life. The union of the sperm and the egg creates the life. Mm. And it's the zygote that does the real work of development. The, the womb, which I was raised to think was like this magical, mystical vessel, is, you know, it's really a blood-rich muscle, you know? But women still believe they create life. And... Men don't. You know, women create life. Men kill. You know, another classic example is, ooh, a spider. Ooh, a spider. Kill it. Kill it. I don't want to kill the spider. You want to kill the spider? You go kill the spider. No. What's wrong with you? Kill the spider. Come on. <laughs> you know, we just, we're in a bad spot. Men are in a bad spot. We're very insecure about a lot of things. The psychological strategies that have been used by women to counteract our greater physical capabilities are much more sophisticated, much less obvious, much more difficult to see how to counter. But we better get we better get cracking.
we better get to work on trying to dismantle, well, not dismantle, but to equalize the female power structure. And it's, it's formidable and it's impressive. And women are really good at maintaining it to everybody's detriment if they, if they maintain it for their own exclusive benefit. Mm. I think the other aspect on this is also the, the approach that men have got to take a lot more responsibility of realizing they are two sides of a coin. You've got predominantly the more physical, you could say, doing part of the person of the being. But there's also the emotional aspect and actually realizing that the emotional aspect makes the person. Being able to access those emotions allows you to feel a lot more balanced and allows you to feel a lot more human and allows you to be more connected. And having the ability to learn that and teach that and realizing that emotions have got a place within a man just as much as God place in a woman where it's very easily recognized in women because of the nurturing aspect but men have just as much nurturing capability within them but they've got to realize that they've got to develop it and two they've got to recognize it because the drive i think because of a lot of the you could say paradigms is to deny that aspect and to do and to act and to be and to try and display malehood in all its various glories and instead of realizing that you have to be able to identify your emotions, because if you start denying your emotions, you create a problem situation. And that is, I think, a very key lesson that a lot of men have to learn and teach, not just learn. Yes. Let's think about the two things that had to happen for the women's movement to succeed. <clears throat> One, and they, they didn't happen simultaneously. They, they sort of ramped up in, a, in an upward spiral, a virtuous cycle. Women had to first, well, no, women had to achieve two things at the same time. They had to develop their ability to be good business people, get good at math, get good at science, you know, all things that they were sort of told weren't really their thing. And along with them getting the ability to do these things, they had to have the opportunity to make use of these things. They needed to have access to jobs and careers, and they needed businesses to stop saying, no, you're a woman. So we don't care that you think you can do science. We know better. Hmm. At the same time, what needs to happen for men is that, look, men are not going to develop their emotional capacities and their capacities for nurturance. Men are not going to invest in their relationships if their investments are not protected, right? How much money are you going to put in a bank that could fold tomorrow and take your life savings? Mm. The situation for men when they get married and have kids, it can be very tenuous, in some states in the United States, it's better than in others. But <clears throat> I, I know that around the world in industrialized nations, it's also often very risky for men. They invest heavily in their relationships with their kids. A divorce happens and boom, he's out of there. The law might say he gets to see the kids. The law might say she's got her. But if she doesn't, what happens to her? Nothing. Who comes to his aid? Nothing. His investment is basically wiped out. So if we want men to be more emotional and relational and nurturing and feeling, our ability to do that and to have that work for us and to be productive and beneficial for us has to also be ramped up at the same time. 
Because if men know that all of this hard work they can do emotionally can be turned into nothing, that's not an investment they're likely to make in the in the volume and with the intensity that we want and that men themselves want and need. Mm. I used to be a parole and probation agent in, in Baltimore, which is a... I don't know if you know the, the reputation of Baltimore over in England, but it's it's a pretty distressed city. And I was a parole and probation agent in central Baltimore. And I got the feeling from talking to mostly men who were my, my clients, parole and probation clients, I didn't get to talk with them a lot because the caseload is horrendous. But when you would get a chance to talk with these ex-offenders, the phrase we used, and get a chance to talk with them about who they really were and where they came from and what life was like for them, I developed the suspicion, the thought that maybe in many cases, maybe even in most cases, the baddest, meanest, bitterest, hardest criminals are the ones who are the sweetest, nicest, most open trusting and caring as little kids. And when their sweetness and openness and caringness got trampled by the lives that they were living as boys and as young men, completely discounting and even ridiculing their feelings, well, you know, they go in the exact opposite direction. The hell with feelings. Mm -hmm. The hell with everybody. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares what my life is like. Why should I care about, I'm looking out for number one. I mean, that's like the definition of antisocial, right? Hmm. So we could do so much better. It's a difficult road. It's a yeah. it's very it's very challenging because the a lot of the perceptions are developed and enhanced and also promulgated by media and society cultures and everything else. So there's a, there's a lot of adjustment that needs to be made on so many different levels. It's not just, oh, men have got to be more in touch with their emotions or other people have got to recognize it. It's also the cultural approach, the paradigms, you know, viewpoints and everything else. You're talking about 200 years old of industrialized you could say desensitization when it's come to the family unit. And it's going to take a long time to disentangle that and get back to normal. And there's a there's quite a quite a lovely TV program over here. It's, a, it's based on a family and a farm in, in Yorkshire in, in a part of England. And it's a farmer, his, his wife, and he's, he's got about nine kids. And to see his relationship with his family and how the family unit actually functions is, to be honest, one eye-opening, but it's also incredibly refreshing to see, you could say, the, the caring authoritative figure, but also the fact that he's the teacher, he's there to support the kids, the relationship with the family and how family units should function. And that is something which is endearing because it shows what a family unit actually should do and how it functions and how it functions correctly when it's given the time to develop in that way. And would you, it's interesting. Would you be able to call this this male farmer, would you, would you be able to call him the patriarch of the family? He'd be called the patriarch of the family, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's, you could say, overly male in it. He's... He's part of the family in the role that he's providing. Yeah, precise, precisely the point I, I, I would like to make in, in this context. How about the, the mother? Would, what, what would, she, would she be seen as the matriarch of the family? In, in the role of the other half of the, you could say, the couple, but in the family, yes. But 
both of them provide the same level of care and teaching and support for for the children. And they cooperate with each other. Yeah, very much so. So, yes. And so it's interesting that when I asked if the man could be considered the patriarch of the family, you said yes, but that doesn't mean anything negative. Because our, our current idea of patriarchy is negative. Male influence in a family must be negative because we know how men are. And the idea of patriarchy has been politicized. It's, now, it's not just patriarchy now. It's the patriarchy. The patriarchy. The vast global cabal of <laughs> male oppression of women. I mean, that's how sometimes I think we're, it's a matter of branding and the male brand is really tarnished and the female brand is really polished. And, you know, it's a matter of messaging and being out there with with the right words, the right symbols, the right images. And women are really good at this. And the images they're putting forth of men are not especially nice. And the images, the images they're putting forward of themselves not always entirely realistic because, you know, I, I have gotten into fights in, in my life by saying to people, you know, most men are good and no woman is perfect. And it's the response statement. is, of course, it's a true statement, but it picks a fight because people will say, what do women do wrong? What do women ever do wrong? They're human. <laughs> but yeah, but, but, but they're female human. You know, it's, 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 it's it doesn't it's not, it doesn't discount the fact that they're human and doesn't discount the fact that they can make mistakes. But the point is that it's difficult for people to acknowledge in our current social climate. It's difficult for people to acknowledge that women ever do anything wrong. Believe the woman. Believe the woman. Women, no woman would ever falsely accuse a man of anything. Believe the woman. It's really not... I mean, that's that's sort of based on PR. It's sort of based on the image of the of women as always virtuous and noble. And if a woman says that a man did something slimy and despicable, well, there's probably a pretty good chance she's telling the truth because we know how men are, <clears throat> which gives me hope that, you know, it might not take 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Maybe what it will take is just a really effective PR campaign. That's, you know, that cheapens it. But a marketing campaign, an image campaign for men. Hmm. I mean, I guess, you know, what comes to my mind right now in the United States, we have the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And, and it still uses the term colored people because it's an old organization that hasn't abandoned the term colored people. They have the image awards every year for people who portray blacks in a positive way because they know how damaging and how common are negative portrayals of mm. blacks. I don't know. Do we need male image awards? It's that show you, you mentioned about the, the farmer. You know, boy, that, that could be up for a prize. And, you know, fashion... It's sort of a matter of fashion. Men are out of fashion. <laughs> Men, you know, it's really and truly, we're, we're just not cool. You know, we're clueless, we're stupid, we're gross, we're clumsy, we're awkward, we're always trying to get sex. You know, we're just not very cool. Women are much more cool. But that's a fashion. That's a matter of fashion. And it could turn like that. It could. I'm not saying it will, but it could. And it gives me some hope that we can get out of this mess that we're in. 
you know, because if men start seeing positive portrayals of themselves, they're going to feel better about themselves. And so they'll be less likely to just hang their heads and say, yes, dear, you're right. I'm a scumbag. I deserve every bad thing anybody ever does to me. You know, it's, no, they're less likely to, to tolerate that. They're going to be like, oh, wait a second. I'm not like that. I'm a good person. Men are good people. And I'm one of them. It, it could happen. I'm an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing. Which yes, is a good but, thing. But, but I sort of sardonically and cynically say, yeah, I'm an optimist and it sucks because things never turn out as well as you hope they will. <laughs> Which means you're not really an optimist. You know, so that's sort of where I am. I want to be an optimist, but boy, I'm not seeing a lot of optimism, not a lot of cause for optimism right now. <laughs> Journey of a thousand steps. Yeah, well, good. Yes, you're right. <laughs> you're right. And the journey really even, you know, begins before the thousand steps. The journey begins when you decide, hmm, where do I want to go? Yeah. Maybe I don't really want to be here. Maybe there's a better place and we should get there. <laughs> I think it's the important thing is making the decision about the person you want to be that's going to provide the most value. And certain aspects are quite like the way that Jordan Peterson presents itself as where he's identifying with men who are disenfranchised because he's telling them to take on responsibility and standing up for themselves, but also doing it in a way that's not denigrating women or being disrespectful. It's being a man for the sake of a man by identifying with the qualities of a man, whether it's the maleness of it or whether it's the other aspects of it, the social side of things, but it's taking responsibility. And it's a good message to have. And he's been lambasted quite often because of the polarization that is perceived because people are perceiving the, the patriarchy. And he calls it out quite often. And I think it's a good point to make. And he challenges a lot of perceptions. And a lot of the interviews, when you actually look at it, he's, he's not being disrespectful. He's being considerate. He's being thoughtful. But he's also speaking from a very deep knowledge source. He knows his sources of knowledge. He's, he knows the information. And he can speak very, very concisely to challenge paradigms, which is the way it should be, which is what you should be able to do. And that is one of the things that I really appreciate about watching his interviews and his content. He's very considered and he's very thoughtful in his approach. And I really do enjoy watching his interviews and reading his content. And, and millions of men appreciate Mm. what he does and how he does it and what he says, which is also, you know, cause for hope. Of course, we need more men speaking, not just listening. Yeah. And which is why, which is why podcast that I'm doing is called Men Are Talking. And um, a tagline that I have considered using for that is sometimes just talking can be a revolutionary act. <laughs> talking is also a good way of actually learning and finding new perspectives because sometimes yeah, you get a harder moment. If if you're in a, if you're talking with somebody who is a good listener and who uh, is also willing to speak from their heart, yeah, it's a great way to learn that you're not alone in what you think. Many men think they have a personal problem because they think these kinds of things that they hear that it's a man's world and boy, you're lucky for being a man and you have all the privilege. And they're thinking, well, I don't really feel that way. Maybe I have a personal problem. 
And of course, what's one of the worst epithets for a man to be tarred with? You're a loser. What a loser. Well, I'm not a loser. I'm 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 fine. I'm I'm a winner. I'm a winner. I'm I, I don't really think those things. I, I was just it's just a fleeting comment. When really it's deep in his heart and he thinks about these things a lot, but it's hard for him to find support for it. But, you know, as more and more men start speaking up, well, then, you know, we have the network effect, right? You're not the only fax machine in the country. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And I think it's the fact that people have to be willing to listen and you have to be willing to learn and you have to be willing to sometimes take a step into the unknown. Men are very good in the, you could say, physical realm of things, being brave in those areas, but they've got to learn how to be brave emotionally and also being brave personally. Yes, it's a risk that something might not work out and emotionally it's going to be difficult, but it doesn't mean it cannot be rewarding and it doesn't mean that you can't learn from it. And that is probably the most valuable thing that you can give to somebody is actually teaching them the fact that difficult things are opportunities to learn. You have to be willing to listen. You have to be willing to, to, to find the gold in it. And if you take an analogy, you know, finding gold means you have to work really hard, dig, at the, dig it into the ground, find the seam, find the ore and mine it. And then you have to go through the refinement process of actually getting gold out of it. It's not something you just walk and pick up on the ground. Sometimes you do. You get the big nuggets. But most of the time, it's a hell of a lot of work to actually get that precious metal. So yeah, It's a good image. It's a, it's a really good image. Yeah. And I, I think men have tons and tons of gold in us that our society isn't really interested in. It's more interested in the lead and the iron in us <laughs> than the yeah. gold. Yeah. Jack, where can people get hold of you? And you mentioned your podcast, but where else can they get hold of you? Well, the podcasts will be launching. I'm, I'm recording some now, but they won't be published until about the middle or end of June of 2021. Mm -hmm. They're called Men Are Talking, where I talk to men. And the other one is called Goodwill Toward Men in which I interview women. They are published by a little outfit called Male Friendly Media, and we'll have a WordPress site and, you know, all of the accoutrement of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hope I said that right, never studied French, of podcasting. I, I have a website, jackcammer.com, which mm -hmm. might serve as a place for people to see some of what I'm about and some of the things I've written. And there's a contact form there. And I offer myself out as a guest on podcasts as well as uh, being a podcaster myself. Excellent. I'll share your content on the show notes and you know get it out there for you. It certainly has been a, an interesting discussion. And thank you very much for your time and for your insights. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate what you're doing. And thank you for your great questions and your, your interesting and valuable observations on the situation. Thank you very much. Have a very good evening. Thank you. Day. You too. Take, okay. Take yes, it is, it, is, it is early evening here. Thank you so much, Lance. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Thank you. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.